Eric, if you could bring the lights down a bit. Thank you. I want you to think this morning about somewhere you've been that feels like really extra holy. You know, somewhere you just have that like holy sense or holy feel. Um, I know, and I've, I've shared a picture of this place in a sermon before. I don't remember why I brought it up, but uh, this is one place that comes to me right away. So this is actually so central Greece. Um, shared, so I have family in, in Greece, well, Stella's family in Greece. And I always tell people, this is one of like, for people who are Westerners, like this is like kind of the, one of the hidden gems of Greece. Everybody thinks of the Greek islands, and they're beautiful. But this is actually central Greece. Uh, it's a place called Matera, and you can kind of see it's a little bit dark in here, but all on all these like mountaintops are all these uh, monasteries that were built. And they're just incredible. Um, some of them are on the peaks like that there. Um, others are actually like built into like the little crevices on the side of the mouth. It's amazing. And like to get these, the materials up there, some of them, it took them 70 years to get the materials to the top to build it. And actually, uh, what a lot of people don't know is, is part of why we still have all the Greek literature and things that we have is because during the wars, they would take and bring it up to these monasteries, and it was so hard for people to get up there and like destroy things. That's how they were preserved. So going around these monasteries, just this beautiful, beautiful place, and it just, ah, oh, there's this kind of holy feel there. You see all these religious relics and so on. But as I thought more about it, I realized that as, as holy as that felt, I got to share actually a place that has felt holier for me is actually this place. This is, uh, well, I mentioned it earlier. Today's the, the final registration deadline for Camp Rise. Shameless plug. Um, like probably the, the place where I felt like closest to God in many ways in my life has been at the top of, we call it Meditation Hill, Med Hill. Um, campfire, singing up on top of the hill, sunset, it's just, it's just awesome. I always love that, that moment. But then as I thought about it, I realized, I'm like, why does that feel some ways more holy than this other spot? Like, just the fancy buildings and everything. And I realized that it's more than the spot, it, it, it's actually a lot more about what's going on there. About what was happening when I was in that spot. Because, see, what was happening there, what happens there on Med Hill is actually the same thing that happens right here, which is why, as I thought more about it, where we are right now, this is actually, just so you know, the holiest place I've ever been, here in this moment. I've never been anywhere holier than right now, than right here. And our lesson today is going to show us why. Why we are in the holiest place that I've ever been, and that actually, you know what? It's the holiest place you've ever been to. Today we're going to talk about the value of fellowship, of being together with other Christians. It's the second installment, or really third week of Easter, but we really, last week, kick-started talking about this new series. We're in godly values for a new life, talking about what is beautiful, what God values, what God cherishes about this new life that he's given us, and what is now foundational to our new life as Christians. Last week we talked about the value of faith. That because faith is being brought to faith in God, the God who created us, the God who rescued us, faith is something that moves mountains. Because it's not about a strength or a power in us, it's about the one we believe in. And we know that when Jesus died and rose again, all of our sin, that mountain of sin, was tossed into the sea. And when the stone was rolled away on Easter Sunday, when we were brought to faith in that, we now get to live as people who are truly alive, as people who are living by faith. That is the now foundational, powerful aspect that each and, of, each and every one of us has. Last week, our lesson, we talked a bit more in an individual way. This week, we're really focusing on broadening it in a collective way. 
not just thinking about the new value for me as an individual Christian, but for me as a part of the body of Christ, or really for the whole body of Christ, looking at us together as the church, as people who enjoy what we call fellowship. The lesson we have is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, I'll give a little bit of introduction to the book, book of Hebrews with our background lesson today. The book of Hebrews is this really incredible book, but it's also a really unique book in that we're not told exactly who the human author is. Uh, when, remember, when we say human author, remember how the book of the Bible is, is authored. There's this thing called verbal inspiration, where God, the Holy Spirit, guides and moves along people to write down the word. So it, it, it's God's word written by men, written by people. We're not sure who the human author is that God chose to, to, to use, um, but we do know very clearly what the audience is. Not so much the location, but really what their background is. The people are, are Hebrew in background. That's where we get the name, Hebrews. The, the, it's really directed to people who come from this background where they've been worshiping um, from the Old Testament, from the Old Testament laws and rituals. The, the backstory of the Old Testament is very, very familiar to them, which is why when you go through the book of Hebrews, uh, this writer will refer back to event after event after event from the Old Testament and bring in lots of symbolism and ideas from the Old Testament. When you study the book of Hebrews, it will actually help you study the whole Old Testament because to really get the book, you will have to stop and wait. Okay, what's he referring to? And then go back and review and then read some more and then go back and review. It's really a great way to study the whole Bible because it will drive you back to the Old Testament while showing how Jesus fulfills it in the New. It's a really beautiful book. But the reason why he's writing to these, these people who are Hebrew in background is because there's a real temptation, a real challenge at this time to go back to the old way of living and believing pre-Jesus. Because if you think about it, they, 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 they now believed in Jesus and now things were different. A lot of their friends and family didn't. A lot of the people around them did not. There was a lot of social pressure to, to go back to where they were before. They had gone a different way, a new way. And as they faced the everyday struggles of faith with that social pressure on top, you know, eventually we'd have persecution too where people end up giving their lives and things for the faith. At this point, it really seems more like a social pressure for the most part. But even that could just be extremely intense. So there's this real pressure to go back to the pre-Jesus way. And so this writer showing how Jesus is everything that the pre-Jesus way was pointing to. Everything that the Old Testament was pointing to. Jesus is better. So Jesus is worth it. Now, there, I mentioned there's so many different ties from the Old Testament in here. We're not going to go back and review all of them. It's going to be, it would be too much to go through. Um, but as we go through our lesson, we will bring some of these different pictures in from the Old Testament to help us see the beauty of what we have before us in our lesson today. Our lesson that starts off, it says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. 
The word confidence in the original language is this really, it's this kind of interesting word picture. It, it really means to, to pour forth speech. So basically that you, just, that you can just talk and talk, that you don't have to hold your words back. And at the root of it is actually the word picture of like flowing water. So I think of like when you've got your, if you ever had like your hose and maybe you've got that thing on the end, you can turn the water off, you can turn it to like sprinkle, you can turn it to rain or whatever. There's way too many functions on there. Um, at least for my liking, right? <laughs> I need like three. I don't need all your other things. To, I got to click through to get to what I want. Um, but anyway, sorry for that tangent. Um, the idea is at full board, like you just let it all out. That you don't have to pull back. That you can actually just go all the way in to the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. If we have our minds around what holiness is, that will help us greatly when it comes to understanding the rest of this lesson and just what a beautiful gift fellowship is. So we're going to take a moment today and we're going to review what the Bible Project, the Bible Project video has, has, has put together to help us understand what holiness means in God's word. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, this the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. 
And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. <laughs> totally. So it flies over with a hot coal and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development, this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple, and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream, and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now, but where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. And this time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. God has made us holy. That's pretty remarkable. That he has made you and he's made me, he's made us pure. The temple of God, the holy place of God. And our lesson today is really going to flesh out how that happens, how that works. And help us really ponder and chew on what that means then for us, not only as individuals, but when we're gathered together as people who are made holy in Christ. Help us really appreciate the value of fellowship. See, our listen, he says, we have confidence to enter the most holy place 
by the blood of Jesus. And the video mentioned it, but how in the, in the tabernacle and then in the temple, there would be this, this kind of hot spot of God's presence, right? So there would be this curtain that separated from the holy place and then to the most holy place. And there were all these rules about, about who could enter. Really, actually, the most holy place, it's one person, one time a year, and only with blood, which I know seems weird to us, but there were all these sacrifices God had the people do in the Old Testament. And it was this constant reminder that God, being a good and loving God who, who loves good, also then hates evil. That when you, when you love good, you've got to hate evil. If you love someone, you're going to hate the bad things that happen to them. If you love your world, you're going to hate when people corrupt it. And so there needs to be justice for sins. And that blood shows that there's justice that's going to be paid for. And so we're told that we have this confidence to enter into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Jesus' death is where that justice is met. Our lesson, it says, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. The word new, interestingly, sometimes there's these little details that just don't come out unless you look at an original language. The word new, it's not your typical just all brand new or fresh. It's a word that specifically describes something that's newly slain, like a new sacrifice or something newly butchered. So you've got all these sacrifices in the Old Testament, but now there is a new one. A new one that is different. A new one that is better. A new one that is final. And, and he's different partly because not only, not only is he the sacrifice like the animals, but notice our lesson says that his body is also the curtain. So he's the sacrifice, but then also he's that spot, he's that, 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 that place where access to God's going to be opened up. That's why when you read through, when you went through the season of Lent, and if you read through the Passion history and so on, when Jesus dies, that temple curtain that, se that separated people from the most holy place, what happened to it? It was torn in two. When Jesus died, because he is the ultimate sacrifice, the barrier between God and people also died, was ripped in two. So that now we have full access to God, to be able to live with God. So that's this other interesting thing about this verse. It says that he's a new, freshly slain sacrifice, which typically then if you slay something, right, it would be dead. But then notice the next word. He's also living. See, that's something else that really sets him apart as a sacrifice. He's the one sacrifice that didn't stay dead. He came back to life again. He is a living way into the presence of God. You have a, a, a path into the presence of God. The presence of God can be with you because there is this living way named Jesus that makes it possible for you and God to be together. For you to enter his presence and for his presence to be here with you. You have a new sacrifice, someone whose blood is poured out to pay the price for your sin. He rose again to be a living way for you to access God. He tore down what separated you from God, and now he makes it possible for you to have life with God in his presence. Remember that when you think about what it means then that we, we come together. Not only does he just say that he gives us access to his presence, but then he goes on and, and he says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, now stop for a minute, this is where we got to bring in an Old Testament detail. The high priests, often what they would do in that temple is after there'd be the sacrifice, they would bring the blood in, and I know this is a weird picture for us, but they'd take and they would sprinkle it in different spots in the temple and in the holy place and so on. And it seemed to showcase or show 
that not only was there this justice for sins, but biblically, the source of life in your body, your blood is actually called your lifeblood. Biblically, the idea is that's where your source of life is. So, if you want to live in God's presence, you're going to be alive in God's presence, there would need to be life spread around in that space. And the high priest, the priest would do that. Well, Jesus is the ultimate priest to make it so that we can live with God. We have a high priest, a great priest, over the house of God. So our lesson then goes on to say, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Your heart has been sprinkled with the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus has been placed over, has been sprinkled over your heart so you can be alive in a new way with God. And it says that our bodies have been washed with pure water. Remember that image from the, that, the video we watched about being pure in God's sight? This is what this is talking about. Is in order to be in God's presence, you have to be cleansed. You have to be pure. Well, when you're brought to faith in Christ, and when you're baptized into Christ, you are cleansed. You are washed. So that now you are a clean space. You are a clean person that can enter into God's presence, but now you're also a clean space, just like the holy place would be a place where God's presence could dwell. You are a clean space where the presence of God can dwell. That's why in our lesson it also says to come close in a, in a sincere heart. Most literally it actually says unveiled heart. So you think of a veil kind of covers, right? There's like a little barrier there. Well, you don't have to have a barrier at all between your heart and God. The God who knows everything about you says, you can come fully on into me. Come, come fully to me. I see you, and I see you as being completely washed and clean and pure. You don't have to hide. You don't have to hide back some, some guilt or some shame. You don't have to keep that one thing tucked over there. Bring your whole heart to me, because it is clean because of my son, Jesus. Bring your whole heart and draw close to me. Which, by the way, just think about this. When you look in the mirror, you see someone that, as far as God's concerned, is 100% absolutely clean. You might sometimes feel dirty or shame-filled or guilty, but when God sees you, he doesn't see a speck of dirt. He says you don't have to hold back your heart for a second. Because he sees someone who's been covered with the life of his son. When God sees you, he sees Jesus. He sees his perfect life. When God sees you, he sees someone who is clean. When you look in the mirror and you see your body, you see a place that has been cleansed so the presence of God can live inside of you. This is what you see when you look at yourself. This is part of, why, the way, why we can look at ourselves and, and, and treasure and ourselves and why, we, why God's word encourages us to, to, to think about your body as a valuable place a place worthy of respect and dignity because the presence of God can dwell inside you, does dwell inside of you. God has cleansed, cleansed you. He has purified you. You are a, a, a dignified, respectful place, being, person because of the blood of Jesus, because he's washed you clean. And because we've been washed clean, you can come now, draw near to the presence of God. Remember that background lesson we read from John chapter 17? Where Jesus, who was praying, he said, sanctify them by the truth. And by the way, the word sanctify means make holy. So Jesus said, make them holy by the truth. 
And then he said this thing about how they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. See, you and I were looking forward to someday living in the presence of God, but recognize the presence of God is in you right now. You are not yet in heaven, but heaven is in you. You are not yet in the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God lives inside of you. So draw near. Draw near. Come close to God. How do we do that? How do you draw near? Some ways you can draw near of God. We think about how you can draw near to God in your prayers, right? You can come close to him and, and approach God, share what's on your mind, share what's on your heart, put it before God and say, God, your will be done, and let God work on your heart and, and show you his will. That's one way you can draw close. You can draw close to God by spending time in his word, by hearing what he has to say, by, by open up your Bible app and look at those daily Bible verses or whatever you do, but you can use his word, you can draw close. You can draw close to God in the sacraments. Remember what it means that you're baptized into Christ, where you literally have water applied to you, where you're washed clean in his eyes. You can draw close to him in the Lord's Supper with his body and his blood. But here's the one way that I think sometimes we forget. Here's another way you can draw close to God. is by being around other, other people who are also clean spaces. So that's the thing is, if God dwells inside of you and inside of you and inside of you, what's one way to get closer to God? For me to be with you, and with you, and with you. When you are surrounded by fellow Christians, you are surrounded by the presence of God. Because God dwells inside of each and every one of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You want to draw close to God, draw close to each other. That's the beauty, the value of fellowship. God in his word, he, he says that we should draw close to draw close to him, and part of how we draw close to him is, is dry, drawing close to each other, and we need to be reminded to draw close to God, because sometimes it's going to be tempting to swerve from that hope we profess. He says, let us hold unswervingly, or more literally, it says, don't lean. Don't lean over. Think about the picture of not leaning over. Anyone know what this, this game is called? Jenga. Jenga. Yeah, I got this for our Sunday night youth ministry epic, right? We, and we'll play this sometimes. And by the way, epic teens are nuts with the, what they do. But I'll show you how, how it typically works, right? So you take like one of, let's see, I got to find one that's pretty, that moves. Man, here we go. It's a good, good, simple one. Normally you take it and you put it up here. You know, see what they will do. They'll, they'll be like, oh, I'm going to take it and do this. <laughs> Thanks, y'all. All right, but anyway, so typically you put it like this. But as you do more and more of it, you know what happens sometimes with the Jenga? It starts to lean. You know what happens when this big thing starts to lean? A lot of noise. Because <laughs> that's when it will topple over and fall over, okay? It's the same idea with this picture. Don't swerve. Don't lean. Because when you lean, it's when you can trip up and you can fall. And how about you? But I look at this verse when it says about don't lean, don't lean over. I realize that there are plenty of times where I as an individual do lean, where I as an individual don't live as someone who is a, a, a temple of God. I don't act like somebody who has the presence of God inside of me often. Sometimes quite opposite. And I'm sure you do too. Where you don't live as a reflection of, of who God is, which by the way, when, like, when you pray, hallowed be your name in the Lord's Prayer, this is one of the biggest ways, sometimes we just think it's like, well, don't say like OMG or whatever. The biggest way we dishonor the name of God is by claiming the name Christian and then acting differently. That's the biggest way we dishonor the name of God, is living different than what his name is. Sometimes we do it, and I know I do it, I know you do it, but also let's be real, sometimes the church does it. 
Sometimes the church doesn't act like the church. Sometimes people in the church do terrible things. Sometimes churches, and I know many of you know it because you've told me about it, this terrible experience at a church here or there, whatever. Sometimes we, many times, the church has not been acting as if the presence of God is here. That's why I love the second part of this verse, by the way. Because it says, it says, he who promised is faithful. So we're not always faithful, but he is. We're not always faithful in our lives, but, but he is faithful. And we know he's faithful because he went all the way to a cross, laid down his life to take the justice for every wrong thing you and I have ever done. And he rose again just like he promised. And if he went to the cross, and if he rose like he promised, you better believe there's not a single promise he's going to break. Which means no matter how much we personally mess up, we're forgiven, we are cleansed, we are clean in his sight. No matter how much the church can screw up at times, we are still where the presence of God dwells. Still people living with the hope of eternity with him. Still people who have the presence of God right here, right now. We still have that value of fellowship. So our lesson says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Come together, and let's think about how can we encourage each other to love each other and to love the world. And the word love there, it's that agape love, that all-in Jesus love, where you give your life for other people. Let's think about how do we encourage each other to love each other. And how do we and, and, and come together and spur one another on? That's not a phrase we use very often. It literally means sharpen each other. So you think about taking like a pencil or something. I, mean, I don't know the last... Last time I sharpened a pencil, but old school style. You're thinking about actually sharpening a pencil, right? So you can write clearly. How do we sharpen each other? So you can do good deeds, which sometimes actually good deeds in the church get a bad rap because people think good deeds are this thing you got to do for God. Good deeds are the gift God gives you because you were made to live as a walking picture of God. When God, by his spirit, gives you the power to live his way, he's really enabling you to be what you were meant to. You don't do good deeds to earn from God. God rescued you so you could do good deeds. It's a gift. So how do we come together and spur one another, sharpen each other to be what we were meant to be, to live in this world the way we were meant to live in this world? Think about that. Let's consider how to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. It's an interesting, early on in the church, people were already getting out of the habit of meeting together. Apparently, that's something that happens pretty quickly for people. For whatever reason, people can stop meeting together. And I want you to think today about what are some of the reasons why we don't meet together the way we should as much? Over the last couple of years, there's been a lot that separated people, right? And it could be, sometimes it's, it's, I mean, of course, we've got social distancing that has needed to be done at times. And so you take, and there's that. But then there's also, there was sometimes political strife, and that separates people. And there's, there's also, there's different things going on in our world, you know, different opinions about different things. And there's just all this that starts to, actually, not even just put it up there, but <laughs> takes people out of the tower, Sometimes it's kind of repositioned them, but maybe sometimes even taking them all the way out. And that's on top of the fact we live in a time that is just, we live in a world right now, let's just realize this, that it's very, it, it kind of inherently drives us towards being by ourselves. 
In the, in, in, in the United States, we have a very individualistic culture. It's about me and what I want to do, right? We don't think collectively. Most cultures think more collectively. We don't. We live in a world with a lot of great technology, and I love it. You know I use this technology a lot, right? I'm on it all the time, and I'm thankful for it, especially during some of the really high points of the pandemic, how we could use Zoom and different things to connect. I'm very thankful for it. However, recognize that the devil can use it too, and we live in a time right now where, like, I don't actually have to go out and see people to buy anything. I can just open up my phone and go to Amazon, and it comes, which I also really appreciate a lot of times. But notice a little trend. I don't have to go anywhere to do anything. I don't have to go to a movie to watch. People got 80-inch TVs in their homes. No one's got to go to a theater anymore, right? You don't have to go out with people. You just do it at home. I don't have to. You don't even have to watch shows at a certain time. It's all on demand. Just watch it whenever you want. So we just do things... Like, it's just all trying to all see all these things add together, and our culture is actually really, the momentum is isolation, not coming together. Which is part of why, and I mentioned this before worship last week, and we're coming into a new season at Abiding Shepherd, where we're really going to emphasize connection, a season of connection. Be intentional about connection, because the momentum is towards isolation. We need to be intentional about connection. Coming together as the body of Christ, coming together and seeing the beauty of fellowship. Recognize, like this lesson says, we should be coming together actually not less, but more as the day approaches. Because we need to remind each other that in this broken world, there is a day where Jesus will return and he will set everything right. There really is hope for all the brokenness that we experience in our lives and that the world is experiencing around us. And his name is Jesus. And when we come together, remember, we're coming together as the people who have been covered by the blood of the sacrifice, people who now have access through a living way into the presence of God. When we come together, we are coming together as a holy place where the presence of God is alive and active. And remember, like that video pointed out, what's the picture? How does God's presence fill the world? It's through his church. When we come together, we can be built up. And we can stand, you know, when you're by yourself, this tower, this game would be pretty lame if like, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do. You set your block here, and I'm going to set my block here, and here, there's one over there. That would be lame. That's not how it's meant to work. But when we come together, we can build it tall. And we can build it strong, and we can be a light. And we can proclaim the hope that this world needs. The presence of God dwells in us individually, but also collectively. You have never been a holier in a holier place than you are right this moment. That's the value of fellowship.